Several years ago, I had the, the privilege of serving as a chaplain for the football team at the high school that I went to, Pleasure Ridge Park High School in Louisville. And I was a youth pastor at a local church there, and one of my good friends was an assistant football coach, and so he, he allowed me to come and to be a chaplain for the team. And I would get with them every Friday, and that was, of course, game day. And they would, after school, have a, a pregame meal. And you can imagine a pregame meal for a football team of 70 or 80 growing and, and sometimes already grown uh, young men was an interesting thing. They, they used the pregame meal, of course, to get ready for the game. They tried to eat something that would give them some energy. They got some final instructions from the coach. Uh, they, they really, I, I guess in a lot of ways, it was meant to, to bring the team together. It was Something that, that I'm sure even now they look back on and they say, you remember the times when we got together and we ate and we goofed around and, and all that stuff, and, 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 and it was supposed to be a meaningful time for them, and, and it was. I enjoyed my opportunities to be there, and I'd speak to them during that meal. And My advice to you, if you ever go to a team meal for a football team, don't get behind the linemen. Uh, that, that let the kickers go first, and, uh, and then don't, get, don't let the linemen go first. They tend to dominate the buffet, and so... Uh, so anyway, but, but certainly a, a very meaningful time. And those guys are now graduated even from college if they went on to there. And, and I'm sure now they look back and that's something that they really remember, a very meaningful time for them. The scripture that we're going to look at today is about the time when Jesus and his disciples got together for what we might be able to equate as sort of a pregame meal for them. It's the night before Jesus will be crucified and he gathers his disciples together to share one last meal with them. And he's going to give them some final instructions. It's meant to bring them together and to provide some unity and so on. And something that they would look back on years later. The disciples would all be scattered all over the known world after, after Jesus was risen from the dead. And, and he, he sends them on mission and so on. And, and so they, they would have this memory to come back to. And it certainly brought them together as Maybe you know the story of the Lord's Supper when he institutes it. But what's interesting is the, the scripture that we'll see today points to the fact that over the years, this meal, this communion meal that they were to celebrate and to remember the Lord, it had come to take on a very different meaning and different purpose in one particular church than the original design that Jesus set it up for. And, and the Apostle Paul, who's writing to the church that we'll read about today, is more than a little upset about it. He's not happy in any way. So I just want you to know that the tone of the passage we're going to read this morning is angry. Paul's mad. So if you can kind of get in that mindset, either put yourself in the position of the Apostle Paul or in the position of the folks who are reading this and say, my goodness, he is not happy. We're in a series called Easter in the Lord's Own Words, and we're going to lead up to next week. And then even after that, this series will continue looking at the, the words that Jesus spoke in and around the Easter story. We're not looking for new information. I'm going to tell you, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the good news of Jesus Christ cannot be improved upon, and I'm not going to try. It stands alone. It is the greatest message the world has ever known. We are dead sinners, and Jesus died to raise us to new life. And by His death and His resurrection, we may receive salvation by the grace of God. That's the message of Easter. I can't improve upon that. And so there's nothing new to preach about Easter. I'll tell you, Easter is one of the most frustrating times for a preacher. Nothing new to preach. I can't go to anywhere else in the Bible and pull out something maybe you've never heard. I can't go to Leviticus chapter 20, a passage that probably you've never read in your whole life because you get to Leviticus and you give up. You know, that's just the way that it is. Leviticus is a hard book to read. 
great book, but a hard book to read. I can't go there and pull something new, but I can, I think, help us see maybe just a fresh perspective. Nothing new, no new truth, but a fresh perspective, the Lord's perspective and the words that he was saying. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Now, those of you who know the Bible a little bit, you'll know 1 Corinthians is not one of the Gospels, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's not one of the, the ancient biographies about Jesus. But it has an Easter message, the Lord's own words, in it in chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, a little bit real quick about this book of 1 Corinthians. It's a book of correction for the church in Corinth, a city there uh, that Paul was familiar with, and he's writing to them to tell them where they'd gone wrong. And maybe if, you, if you've read or if you plan to read someday 1 Corinthians, you'll, you'll see this. Paul's just calling them out. You're doing this wrong. Why are you doing this? You've gotten off track here and so on. But he's not just calling them out. He's actually also giving them instruction. He's telling them, now, here's where you've gone wrong, but here's how you can get back on track. And he sums up the solution for all of their problems in their church. Now, I'll just... If, if we ever have problems in our church, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll tell you where I'll preach from. All right, I will preach from what is normally preached at weddings, which actually is not meant originally to be heard at weddings, but to be heard in the church when there are problems, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. The answer to the problems in the church that Paul eventually gives that you must love one another just as Christ has loved you. Love is patient, love is kind, and so on and so forth. You think about the problems that you've got in your family, problems you've seen in church before, whatever it may be, the answer, Paul says, is love one another as Christ has loved you. One of the issues he brings up is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he talks about communion, the Lord's Supper. What's going to solve their issues is love, but he's going to build up to that, but he's going to show them the issue, our topic today, the Lord's Supper. He's got some serious problems with what they're doing. Pick it up in verse 17. Let's just look at the first few verses here to begin with. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Now, in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you. Again, Paul's angry. He's not happy. Apparently, they think things are fine. Paul says, hold on a second. In giving the following instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. He's talking about when they gather as a church. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. There must indeed be factions among you, so that the approved among you may be recognized. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one person is hungry while another is drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. Now stop there. The first few verses here, you can see Paul is calling them out on their practice. They were getting together, and it was their custom to take the Lord's Supper or to provide a meal for the church, much like we'll have this afternoon. And Paul says, you've got some issues. What you're doing is wrong. You can picture the coach going to the chalkboard and drawing on there, guys, here's all that's wrong with what you're doing. You're not running this play right. You're not playing defense well, so on and so forth. That's Paul's sort of his mentality. He's been teaching them and teaching them, and he thought they had it, and now they're doing it all wrong. You can imagine why he's mad. He says in verse 17, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. I mean, imagine that, hearing that as a church. You guys might as well stay at home. Look, if that's the way you're going to do church, then just stay at home. Because you're doing more damage than you are good. That's Paul, that's what he's saying. 
He's telling these folks, look, when you, when you gather together, you all think you are doing something. You think you're doing something really great, he says, but you're, you're doing it all wrong. You come together not for the better, but for the worse. And, and here's what he says in verse 18. I've gotten a report that there are divisions among you. Here's the problem he's really got. This is why they're coming together not for the better, but for the worse. I've heard there are divisions among you. Even though you're coming together as a church, you're not really one body. Paul's gotten a report, and he says, you know, maybe this has been exaggerated, but I do believe some of it. So he's going to address those things. Verse 19 talks about these factions that are there. And then verse 20, he says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, when you gather together, and supposedly you're taking the Lord's Supper, it's not really the Lord's Supper you're eating. You're just eating food. It has no real meaning at all. They're there to gather and to eat the Lord's Supper, but they're just giving the appearance that that's what they're doing. In verse 21, he says, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. I'll get to a little bit more about what he's talking about here in just a second. He says, one person is hungry while another is drunk. So some are getting their fill and others are getting nothing. It shows the major differences here in this church, in particular in Corinth, are economic. You've got the haves and the have-nots. We'll get to more of that in a second. He says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? If, you're, if you want to be about yourselves, go home, he says. You want to eat what you want, drink what you want, go home. Don't, don't abuse those privileges in the church. In Paul's eyes, basically what he says here is you look down on the church of God and you embarrass those who have nothing. And he says, should I praise you for that? Should I pat you on the back like you think you're doing so well? He said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to praise you for that. So here's what they're doing. All right, Can I get your mind around these first few verses? When they're coming together as a church, what they're doing is the wealthier members of the church arrive early. Now in, in that time, it's not that different from today. Those who are wealthy have a little more leisure time. Maybe they, they, they were running a particular business or they're at the top of the ladder, so to speak, and they've got more flexible time and money, and so they arrive early. Not only that, but they're the ones providing the meal. Think about it. Those who are poor can't provide the meal that Paul's talking about. So the, the rich folks in the church during, during this time, they're the ones providing the meal, and they're arriving early. Those who are poor, maybe even slaves, who, can, who have to work longer to make, to make money, they can't get there on time. So what does Paul say? You go ahead and you eat without them. He's calling them out on that. He says, hold on just a second. You've got a great opportunity, he tells these wealthier members of the church. You've got a great opportunity to display love and unity. No divisions among you whatsoever based upon how much you have and how much you don't have, but that's not what you're doing. Instead, you're taking advantage of your position. You're taking advantage of what you have, and you've got an ungodly attitude toward those who don't have as much as you have. And you're not waiting for them. In fact, you're just going ahead and drinking all you want. And Paul says, you all are drunk while these folks have nothing. You get the picture that some folks are just enjoying themselves and all about them while the other folks who arrive late have nothing, can't participate in the ministry of the church. So they're filling themselves up while others have nothing. So Paul's saying there's no sharing, there's no compassion, there's no unity among your church. Instead, there's a very sharp division between those who are rich and those who are poor. Now, I really believe that Paul, though he doesn't say it, it sort of goes without saying that it's pretty obvious even within that church. You realize that folks know when there are divisions? Folks know when there are those subtle lines between who's really in and who's really not? I guarantee you this, that if I gave you the assignment, each and every one of us, if I gave you the assignment over the next let's say, two months, to go visit another church for those two months 
and just see, just fill out the worship registration, go to a Sunday school class, visit that church, try to get involved and so on. You would be able to come back to me and give me a pretty good report on they want me there or they don't want me there. Now, they may say they want you there. Oh, they, they, yeah, they, well, the pastor stood up and said, hey, welcome, we're glad you're here and so on. But I tell you what, I, I just sensed that they didn't really want me there. It's not hard to see. And Paul, in drawing these divisions, is not really saying anything but the obvious. And the folks who were poor in that particular church, they knew. They knew that they're being made a mockery of, that they're being looked down on and so on. They already knew that. It's very evident in this church and in any church. And it would be evident in our church as well. If folks are really welcome and if they're not. So in meeting, what they're doing is not being any different from the world. The economic differences that are present in the world were also present in the church. The one place where folks of all kinds should feel comfortable and welcomed and, and a part of things, the church, they, they weren't. So Paul says what you're doing really is despising the church that Jesus established. You're shaming those, looking down on those who have nothing, and you have no love of Christ in you. You're intentionally leaving out those for whom Jesus performed his ministry. Jesus was all about the poor. So in a real way, they're showing some disdain for the Lord and His ministry and His people. They're going through the motions of taking the Lord's Supper, but it has no meaning. And in fact, it's doing more harm than good. And it's bringing shame, as we'll see, on the church and on the individuals in it. Paul says you best just to stop. Close the doors, close up shop, and go home, rather than to keep doing what you're doing. Now, those are his corrections. You can see the... The players sitting in the room saying, <laughs> he's not happy. Um, you can picture the Corinthians reading this, and they get to those verses and saying, wow. Paul is, uh, is irate, quite honestly. But he goes on. He doesn't just leave them there with sort of a, a, a spanking. He's going to tell them, here's what you should do instead. So He, can, he goes back to the board, and he's going to go over some things. Here's how you correct your bad habits. And what he's going to share with them is really a summary of what the Lord's Supper communicates. And here, here's his summary, basically, that the Lord's Supper, communion, is a powerful message about Jesus, about His people, and about our future. Now, communion is, is meant to be a powerful message, a proclamation about Jesus Himself, about His people, the church, and about our future which, of course, is in heaven. Now, there are some traditions who would say that communion is much more than that. I don't want to reduce communion to something that it should not be reduced to. It is a very solemn and serious occasion that we can smile and enjoy ourselves, I believe, because we're receiving the, uh, the message of the grace of God. But I don't want to make communion more than it is. We'll see Jesus here is using when he talks about this is my body, this is my blood. He's using figurative language. He did not literally pull off his flesh and hand it to his disciples. He did not literally cut himself and pour his blood into a cup so that they could drink it. He's using figurative language. So we need to understand that this is a symbol of the grace of God, not the receiving of the grace of God through communion. It's a symbol, but it is a powerful symbol it's a message, but it's a powerful message about Jesus, His church, and our future. The message about Jesus is that we look back to the message of the cross. It's a powerful message about our Lord, and what we do during communion, as we'll see in just a moment, is we look back to the message of the cross. Look in verse 23. 
Paul tells them all they're doing wrong. And then here's, here's what he says. Here, basically, here's how you should do it. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, This is my body. Here, here's a symbol of what I'm about to do. And he breaks bread and he gives it to them. And he says, Look, what I'm about to do is for you. The sacrifice of Jesus was not some abstract thing. He didn't die on the cross for no reason. He died on the cross for you and for me that we might have the opportunity for salvation. He suffered so that we might be blessed. That's part of the message of the cross. Look in verse 25. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So he passes around some wine to them. Colored much like the color of blood. Red wine. And he says, here's what my blood will look like. And it's poured out so that you might be blessed. And it establishes a new relationship between God and His people. Now we go directly through Jesus Christ. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There's the message. The message about looking back at the message of the cross. Every time we take communion, and we will here in just a few moments, every time that we do that, we look back and we proclaim in the present the message of the cross. The message of the cross is one of undeserved love. It's a message of substitution. Jesus took our place. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 makes it extremely clear that Jesus, even in the midst of us being dead in our sin. That He died for us. He demonstrated His love in such a way that even though we are sinners, He substituted Himself. He took our place. The message of the cross is also a message of reconciliation. you got your place there in 1 Corinthians. Turn over to 2 Corinthians real quick. It's a message of substitution. Jesus died for us, a death that we deserved. We deserve to hang on that cross because of our sin. But it's also a message of reconciliation. Jesus bridge the gap between us and God. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 17, maybe familiar to some. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Now everything is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, reconciliation there, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, building the bridge, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them. And He has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see, we plead on Christ's behalf. He's the one who bridged the gap. You can like me and love me and all that stuff, but I can't bridge the gap between you and God. Only Jesus Christ did that, and He alone. You come and talk to me to say, what do I need to do? in order to be right with God, if you want to use that terminology. What must I do to receive salvation? All I'm going to do is point you to Jesus Christ. I can't give that to you. I can't do it. But Jesus can, and He did, in reconciling, building the bridge between the gap that exists between us and God. It's also a message of justification. Look at the very next verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to what? To be sin for us, that we might what? Become the 
righteousness of God. Do you see the trade-off here? Do you see the justification? We are standing before God from our birth is sinner. That's it. Period. Sinner. Yes, He loves you, but you are a sinner. Jesus, in taking your place, did what? He exchanged your sin for His righteousness. So what did He do? He traded places. Now my standing before the Lord is that of Jesus Christ. Righteousness that I could not produce on my own. The message of the cross is one of substitution. Jesus took my place for the sins that I deserve to be punished for. It's a message of reconciliation. I couldn't get to God, so He came to me. It's a message of justification. My standing before Him was as sinner. Now, through faith in Jesus Christ, I can be made righteous. And it's also a message, not just of salvation, at that moment of conversion, you say, yes, I believe in Jesus for my salvation, but it's also a message of sanctification, a fancy word that simply means that you're growing to be more like Christ. Look in Galatians. Flip over to the right just a little bit. Galatians chapter 2. You see the ongoing ministry of the cross in the life of each believer. Beginning the, the, the latter part of verse 19. Galatians 2, the end of verse 19. I have been crucified with Christ, so I've died. And I no longer live, but Christ, what, lives in me. That's the message of the cross continuing in the life of the believer. The life I now live in the flesh, I keep going after salvation, but I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The message of the cross doesn't end at the moment that you say, I surrender my life to Jesus. It continues. The power of the cross of Jesus Christ is the only way that you can be made like Jesus. That's it. I have, I have died to myself. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The message of the cross, one of substitution, of reconciliation, of justification, of sanctification. That's the message of the cross. The message about His people. So the message of Jesus, we look back to the cross. The message about His people is that we look around at the ministry of the church. Paul here makes it very clear that the ministry of the church should have no divisions whatsoever. There should be unity. That all believers, every believer in Jesus Christ is welcome in the church. No divisions whatsoever based upon economics, based upon race, based upon anything. No divisions. None whatsoever. There should be an intentional focus, not only unity, but an intentional focus on those who are easily placed in the margins. Paul calls for unity and he calls for love. That little insert there in your bulletin gives you an opportunity to display very tangibly and, yes, sacrificially, no question, tangibly display the love of Christ to those who are normally pushed to the margins, those who are normally overlooked, those who are easily, just as Paul was talking about, shoved out. Let me show you really quick. Um, uh, well, hold, hold on to that just for a second, Daniel. Um, uh, let me tell you a story first. I, I came across this um, Someone who was pushed to the market. I thought this was kind of poignant. Here's the story. Let me read this to you. One Sunday morning, an old cowboy entered a church just before services were about to begin. Although the old man and his clothes were spotlessly clean, he wore jeans, a denim shirt, and boots that were very worn and ragged. In his hand, he carried a worn-out old hat and an equally worn-out old Bible. The church he entered was in a very upscale and exclusive part of the city. It was the largest and most beautiful church the cowboy had ever seen. It was the largest and most beautiful place. Cathedral ceilings, ornate statues, beautiful moral, murals, rather, stained glass windows, plush carpet, and velvet-like cushioned pews. 
The building must have cost many millions of dollars to build and maintain. The men, women, and children of the congregation were all dressed in the finest and most expensive suits, dresses, shoes, and jewelry that this cowboy had ever witnessed. As poorly dressed as the cowboy looked, and there he took his seat, everyone moved away from him. No one greeted him. No one welcomed him. No one offered a handshake. No one even spoke to him. In fact, they were appalled at his appearance and did not attempt to hide that. There were many glances in his direction as the others frowned and commented among themselves about his shabby attire. A few chuckles and giggles even came from some of the younger members of the church. The preacher gave a long sermon about hellfire and brimstone and a stern lecture on how much money the church needed to do God's work. When the offering plate was passed, thousands of dollars came pouring forth. As soon as the service was over, the congregation hurried out. Once again, no one spoke to him or even nodded at this stranger. As the old cowboy was leading, leaving the church, the preacher approached him. But instead of welcoming him, the preacher asked the cowboy to do him a favor. Before you come back in here again, have a talk with God and ask him what he thinks would be appropriate attire for worshiping in this church. The old cowboy assured the preacher that he would do that, and he left. The very next Sunday, the old cowboy showed back up for the services wearing the same ragged jeans, shirt, boots, and hat. Once again, the congregation was appalled at his appearance. He was completely shunned and ignored again. The preacher noticed the man still wearing his ragged clothes and boots, but instead of beginning his sermon, he stepped down from the pulpit, walked over to where the man sat alone, and said, I thought I asked you to speak to God before you came back to our church. I did, replied the old cowboy. Well, if you spoke to God, what did he tell you was the proper attire for worshiping in here, said the preacher. Well, sir said the old cowboy. God told me that he wouldn't have the slightest idea what appropriate attire was for worshiping in your church. He says he's never been there before. <laughs> now, you know, that's both funny and it hurts, doesn't it? I tell you what, in, in many cases, that's true in a lot of churches. I look around this morning, I tell you one of the things that I am thankful for, that I hope we never, ever, ever lose one of the things that would make me very angry, and I don't mean to threaten you, <laughs> but it would make me very angry, is if we ever became like that. It's easy. I, I tell folks when they ask me, well, what should I wear to your church? I say, well, I'll probably be the only one in the suit. You wear whatever you want to wear. That's fine with me. It doesn't matter to me. And I, I have the feeling that for the most part, it doesn't matter to you either. But it, isn't it easy to see those divisions, even when we don't intend to? There should be no one pushed out, but love instead present in the church. That love should extend to intentional ministry, just like the orphanage that we're going to help to build. Let me show you this quick video, real quick, about a minute long, of just what this little orphanage ministry is about.
Paul said, don't come together and forget those who need what you have. And I, I, I don't want to draw up emotion in you for no reason, but I hope your emotions are stirred. I hope you're motivated to say, you know what, we are not, I am not going to be a person, we won't be a church who ignores those, who just lets it slip out of our mind, even if unintentionally, but we will, we will intentionally love those with our funds, with our energy, with our time, with our presence, whatever it may be. We will love those who are normally pushed to the side. So there should be no divisions, Paul says, but unity. There should be no one pushed out but love. And he also calls for humility. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul calls for it. And he says, you need to recognize your equal standing before the cross. What does he say? All have sinned. Realize not a single one of us in here stands higher than any other when it comes to the cross of Jesus Christ. We all stand right there on level ground, each a sinner, each needing the grace of God, myself included, every single one of us. I may stand up on this stage just to make me look a little taller so you can actually see me this morning, but I don't stand any higher before the Lord than you do. We all stand on level ground. You don't stand any lower, by the way, than anyone else. You may say, I've got a life that's full of sin and it's mounted up and it's, it's as high as it can get. I am the worst person on earth. You know the guy who wrote 1 Corinthians, you know what he called himself? The chief of all sinners, the worst of all. You may feel like the worst of all sinners, but the grace of Jesus Christ, the power of the cross, can save you this morning. The power of the cross can forgive you this morning, can clean up your life. He says when, when you are in Christ, everything is made new. Yes, you, even you with the mountain of sin in your life. The mountain of guilt, Jesus, through his power and his cross, his death and resurrection can make you brand new. So we look around and we see the church. The message about the church is that it ought to be built on the blocks of unity and love and humility. And then the final element of this message of communion is a message about our future. That we look forward to what's known as the marriage supper in heaven. We look forward to the marriage supper in heaven. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is quoted and he, he tells them that he's not going to, to take this same meal again. He tells the disciples, I'm going to have this with you. And I won't do it again until we share it together in heaven. Revelation chapter 19 talks about that one day we, we, the believers in Jesus Christ, will sit down at a feast, what's called the marriage supper. The church, the bride of Christ, Jesus the groom, finally united for all eternity. And we'll sit down at the marriage supper. In Philippians, Paul talks about the fact that this really isn't our home. We have a temporary location, so communion communicates this powerful message about our future. We have a temporary status here. You may say, I cannot stand the world in which I live. Well, praise God, it's not your home. Praise God, you are just passing through. Praise God that one day will all be over, and you will one day stand with the Lord himself and go through that buffet line. And it won't matter if there's a lineman in front of you or not, you'll still get your fill, and you will still fellowship with Jesus Christ. We have a temporary status here on earth. Our home is in heaven. Paul says we are already citizens of heaven. We're not residents yet, but we're citizens of heaven already. That's where we're on our way to. And it reminds us of the hope and the victory that's found in Jesus Christ. So Paul tells us that we ought to look back to the message of the cross, that we ought to look around and make sure the ministry of the church is what it needs to be, that we ought to look forward to the marriage supper in heaven. And then he gives some instruction, and we'll close with this. All of that leads us to one final place to look. We look back, we look around, we look forward. Paul challenges those in, in Corinth. Look at verse 27. 
He challenges them to look in. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. They're taking it in an unworthy way. He's not talking about even just their own personal sin. He's talking about the way the church is participating, is keeping other people out. Their attitude toward the folks who have nothing is not good. That's the un- They still take the Lord's Supper anyway. That's the unworthy way in which, in which they're taking it. And no consideration for others, and it showed. Paul says if you're going to do it that way as a church, then you are asking for trouble from the Lord. If you individually and collectively have no concern for those who are on the outside, those who don't have anything, then you are asking for the judgment of God, it says. So a man, he says in verse 28, should examine himself. In this way, he should eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So make sure that your attitude is right toward those who have nothing. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks what? Judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you. Now, let me tell you, a lot of preachers will threaten you with this verse. A lot of preachers will come to communion time. They will threaten you with this verse. You better be absolutely 100% right with God, perfect in every way, and search your soul to find out if there's one little white lie you haven't confessed yet. Because if not, God's going to kill you. Doesn't it say that? Look, this is why, what does he say? This is why many are sick and ill, and many have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep means dead. Realize that you need to search your soul this morning. You need to be a repentant sinner this morning before the Lord. But Paul is not primarily talking to individuals who may have some skeleton in their closet that needs to come out in the open and be confessed. That certainly needs to happen. But what he's saying is, hey, as a church, you need to look and see, is our attitude right toward those who don't have anything? The sins he talks about are not just personal sins that you've committed. What does he say? You're keeping out those who have nothing. You're getting drunk while everybody else is going hungry. So I don't want to threaten you this morning with that verse. I don't want you to to think, well, if I have one little sin in my life that I've not confessed, God's going to kill me when I walk out the door. Eat your last meal now, all right? Go enjoy it now because God's going to kill you. That's not not what I, I believe Paul is talking about. What he's calling them to is to make sure that individually and collectively, when we come together and we eat the Lord's Supper, that our attitude is right. There are no divisions among us. That there is unity, there is love, and there is humility present in the body of Christ. And then we can take it in a worthy manner. Worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus, who came to bring us unity, who loved us, who came to show us that apart from Him, we're nothing. That's what we need to be about this morning. So when we examine ourselves this morning, do that on an individual level. Make sure that if there's any unconfessed sin, absolutely confess to the Lord. Be made new today. But let's make sure that as a body, as a church, that there are no divisions among us. Between those of different status and so on. Paul says in verse 30 to 32, this is why many of you are sick. If you don't properly evaluate yourselves, then, you, then you, if you do properly evaluate yourself, rather you won't be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined. Thank God that he calls us out on it so that we may not, may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. No divisions. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home. Take care of stuff that you need apart from the church so that when you come together, you won't cause judgment. Wait for each other. Make sure there are no divisions between the haves and the have-nots. Make sure that the church is a different place from the world where folks can come in here and they don't have to have money. They don't have to look a certain way. They can fit in with the church because we are the church of Jesus Christ. The guy who is the leader now for the evangelism department, 
the uh, Kentucky Baptist Convention, a guy named Chuck McAllister, and I heard him say this, this quote. He says, show me a church more concerned about people than their own preferences, and I'll show you a church that can change the world. I really believe that's true. The church in Corinth was more concerned about their own preferences than they were about the people who needed the love of Jesus. So this morning, examine your actions and our actions and our attitudes toward those who have nothing. Take action. Give toward that orphanage. Give toward the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Go if God calls you to a mission trip. Focus your attitude. and Let's focus the ministry of this church on those who have nothing to offer in return. They won't pay their way. They won't drop any money in the offering plate, and that's just fine. Let's love them anyway. This morning, I want to challenge you to do a few things. I want you to receive the message of the cross this morning. The message of the cross that, that brings reconciliation between you and God. That changes your standing before Him from sinner to righteous. It gives you the opportunity to have the, the bridge gapped. And to grow with Christ. Receive. Maybe this morning you say, I just need to preach the gospel to myself. <laughs> I just need to hear it myself. I've been beating myself up for so long and Jesus has already made it right. I just need to trust Him and trust His message. In just a moment, I want us to take the Lord's Supper with an attitude of unity, of love, and humility. If you sense, if there's a division among you and someone else in this church and you say, you know what? For the sake of unity and of love and humility then I will either not participate this morning or I will go to them and I'll make it right before I do. I really believe that's what Paul is talking about. Challenge you, as I said, to give to those who are the have-nots in our world. And then let me, let me say this. When we go to eat in just a minute, I want you to enjoy it. And I'm serious. I want you to have a good time. Make a lot of noise if you want to. The gym echoes. It's great. Let the kids have fun. All right? Let's, let's enjoy it as a preview of what heaven will be like when all of God's people will sit down with the Lord and enjoy the blessing of God. So I, that, that's a command from your pastor. Enjoy the meal. Seriously. Let's pray together, and as I do, I want to ask our deacons, if you would, to come forward. They'll serve us communion this morning. Let's pray together that the Lord would doing us what He needs to. Heavenly Father, we pray that, um, that You would help us to see whatever divisions may be among us. If we've erected any walls between us and those who, who need Your love, Lord, I pray that You would individually and collectively bring us to repentance, that we may take communion this morning in a worthy manner, worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know we're not perfect and we never will be until we get to heaven. So, Lord, we thank you for your cross, the message of the cross. We thank you for the ministry of the church, and we thank you for the hope that we have that one day we'll sit down at a marriage supper with you and enjoy your presence for all eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name.